Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I wanted to be known not because I went for a long swim, but because I'm hopefully sometimes a decent fisherman. That's what I want to be known for. I mean, that's there's, Aaron, that's a discussion that Eric and I have. We have no pride in, in what happened to us out there personally. You know, we're just thankful to be alive every day. And we're just, man, you, you, there's a joy there. When you know you should be, whether you're a cancer survivor um, or whatever you've been through, there is a joy that comes from knowing that, hey, I'm alive and I'm on this earth for one more day. It's a plus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How-To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. I'm Captain Johnny Savage, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast.
Johnny, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I'm uh, I'm glad we could I'm glad we could do this. I just finished your book while I was uh, on a sailboat in the British Virgin Islands, and uh, it was really good, man. Really good book. Thank you very much. It's the reviews that I'm getting are I never expected it to be um, touching people the way it is, but you know, I'm so thankful for it. Yeah, that's the most valuable thing are these the messages that I get from people and how it's changed their life. Well, that's really cool. Bigger than me. So the book uh, is called Lost in the Stream, and it says the miraculous story of two fishermen lost at sea. And uh, it, it is uh, a crazy story. Um, so obviously, I'd love to go into that. But before uh, we get into how you ended up on that boat, I'd like to know, like, you know, your background and, and how you um, found your way to being a mate um, in the beginning. Like, what, what was it about... How did you navigate that? Well, I start, I mean, I've always had a love for fishing as a young boy. I grew up in the southern end of Virginia Beach, and um, it's a rural area with lots of ponds, you know, lots of um, waterways that lead out to the intercoastal and um, fishing every 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 chance I got. Mm -hmm. If my, my parents would holler for me to come home for dinner, my dad would just finally tell my mom, look, he's not coming home to the quit biting. <laughs> um, but it, I loved it. A great way to grow up. Uh, you know, it was a, a the rural area where everything was based through the local church, which was nice, um, had lots of parents. Um, didn't matter where I went, you know, they, my parents knew about what happened, what I did before I even got home. So, <laughs> um, wouldn't change it for the world and actually ended up moving back out there. Uh, at a young age, my father took me fishing, um, quite a bit. And then we also had a next door neighbor uh, who I happened to be a Lieutenant commander in the SEAL team too. Um, his son and I were, were best friends and inseparable and lots of fishing together, whether it was on a base or, you know, locally in Blackwater Creek or Blackwater River, just wherever, wherever, wherever we could get a wet a line. We, I'll never forget. There was one time we had a, it was in October. We had a Northeaster come through, which where we live, um, which is above the sounds of Carolina, that Northeast winds will shove the water out. So it makes the water level drop. Well, well it's a wind tide as I'm sure you're aware of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our, our dad told us, look, y'all aren't going to catch any fish. We're like, okay, we're going to try it anyway. So we went down to the creek just down the road from us and sat actually up underneath the bridge. The water was so low. <laughs> and um, my buddy's father had said, look, if I will clean everything you catch. So we managed to get a stringer back to the house. It was about three foot long, full of full of bluegill and flyers and crappie and bass and you name and he had to clean all those fish so it was a pretty good experience as far as saltwater fishing goes it's amazing that I even got into the realm of saltwater fishing considering what my parents did to me when i was a kid hmm. so i was born in 1972 and was i guess it was 1975 when this movie named jaws came out yeah and they took me to see that movie <laughs> and i remember as a toddler i was just like peeking through the cracks of the seat because i was so terrified and i never saw the end of the movie so I thought that thing was still out there. And um, so that was probably a, roughly the July time frame. And then we have a spot run in September. And my parents took me to the Virginia Beach Fishing Pier. And I remember distinctly sitting in the middle of that pier the whole time, peering through the cracks in the boards, looking at the waves break underneath of us, absolutely terrified because Jaws was down there somewhere. Man, I know. So, that, um, that movie was that movie was so it, it's hard to even imagine or, or to try to relate it to my own kids or anything. It's like, man, when that movie came out, that was, everybody was like that, man. Nobody, you know, I didn't want to, you know, touch the bottom with my feet and you're afraid of sharks in the swimming pool. 
Like it was so, <laughs> yes, sir. it was so influential and, and it made just such a big impact. It, it's, it's crazy um, how that happened, but yeah, Jaws, that was, that was an awesome movie. <laughs> now we got Shark Week. I guess, I guess people, you know, today's generation, uh, they could be equally as afraid of sharks from Shark Week, you know, but Jaws was a, that was an impactful movie. Yes, sir. I see, you know, up here, it seems like, you know, went during tuna fishing season, it started a shark week every single day out there, but I guess we can get to that later on. <laughs> um, then from there, you know, there was a picture that my grandfather had in his garage that I always looked at as a kid. And it was a picture of a, one of the original charter boats out of here called the Gannett. And it was a picture of a you know, big white marlin stretched out across the back of it. And I used to sit in that garage and stare at that picture. Hmm. Well, later on in life, I was probably 12 years old. Um, my grandparents and aunt, aunt and uncle, they lived in Palm Beach. So we were down there visiting. Actually, my dad took me on a headboat out of Boynton Beach. And my mom, my, I didn't even know I said it, but my, my, my mother told me years later, she goes, look, when you went fishing on that headboat, when you came back, you said, I'm going to work on a boat one day. And it just so happened that the, that picture that my grandfather had, the gentleman that was with him was Captain Fred Feller. <laughs> and um, I went to him one day and told him my interest. He said, be down there Saturday at, at 630 in the morning. Wow. And uh, that's, that's a headboat. And so I started Oh yes, sir. On head okay. Catching sea bass out of uh, out of Virginia Beach. Rudy were you Island. were you already good at untangling lines and and tying knots and untying untying knots, or did that come really quickly once you got on the headboat? <laughs> it came really quickly, <laughs> and especially the, you know learning about when people are hooked up with each other underneath a boat and yanking from side to side. Um, one of the things we used to do is you know reach down to a butt one of the buckets and grab like a beer can or soda can or whatever and we kind of crink crumple up and put it on the hook and drop it down and run to the other side and watch them fight that fish they were bringing that fish oh i got him i got him i got him and then they the whole side of the boat would laugh at him because they knew what had happened uh, uh i wonder when, uh, yeah that that seems like that would be a mate's trick to see how long if you knew two people were were tied together and they were having a pretty good time how long you let them let them go before you give them the bad news that they're just hooked to <laughs> yeah that was me you were trying to set that hook in there yeah. buddy thank you and that's how you also knew which one it was right yeah yeah but uh yeah that was you know what tom when i started working on a headboat i was i was in a, in a shell and working on the headboat really brought me out of that with being able to communicate with people huh. um broke that shyness so i think that was a big advantage of it one of the, even today when i look for mates i like to look for mates that have worked on headboat not only for that reason with the people skills but also they're an inspected vessel mm. and then be that being an inspected vessel, they're more in tune with Coast Guard regs and various safety requirements. And huh. they actually know where their life jackets are. Yeah, for sure. So I guess if somebody doesn't know what a, what a headboat is, um, just, just tell them like how many people would be fishing on that boat. What, what's, what's kind of the setup of a, of a headboat if somebody doesn't know, know what that, so, what that is. So on a, especially on any given Saturday, you know, you might have 65 people on a 65 foot boat. So you can do the math. That's not a whole lot of room. Um, they'd be packed in there and using um, conventional reels. Um, they were little pin long beaches that we would use. And they would be, it would be a setup where they'd have a, you know, basically you do a loop system, tie two loop, a perfection loop in the bottom, and then two like figure eight knot loops in the top. You just slide the hooks on there. You'd have roughly an eight ounce sinker, 10 ounce sinker on the bottom. Um, wouldn't take the time for the expensive rigs. And um, lots, we'd cut up lots of squid. 
That was mm-hmm. the main bait that we used for sea bass. And then we would go out out of here, typically 12, 13 miles off the beach. There's some piles of rubble that are artificial reefs, and that's where the sea bass would congregate. And um, just we'd pull over top of it and drop the lines down and uh, watch them have fun. Yeah. Yeah, you can catch a lot of fish like that. There's some there's some headboats um even even today that are, you know, really really good boats that go out um like to the Pulley Ridge area and all that uh where they catch all kinds of fish. And yeah, maybe they have a little bit more room on the boat, but there's there's headboats of all varieties and uh the the one commonality in my opinion would be that there are a lot of people on there. There are a lot of knots. There's a lot of tangling. There's a lot of people that have never fished before. And a mate is literally running around like a one-arm paper hanger, trying to fix, <laughs> <laughs> trying to fix everything. Right. So it is, it is a crash course in in uh, in in untangling and stuff like that. But it is, it's kind of cool that uh, that you said that it pulled you out of your shell because you know if you can get somebody that is somewhat knowledgeable and passionate about something. And you can get in a conversation with them and you can end up talking about that. You can pull almost anybody out of their shell if they're talking about the thing that they're passionate about. And then in that situation, you're like surrounded by all these people that need help and you know how to help them. And so, of course, you're just going to kind of they're asking you questions that, you know, and and it would it would tend to pull you out of your shell. I would imagine that's that was probably great for you. Um and there's a lot of comforting as well, you know, because they get a backlash and they would, would be upset with themselves for getting the backlash. And be like, Look, it's not that bad. We can fix this. Right. And um, just give them, you know, a little bit of hope for, for what had just happened. And then uh, they keep their thumb on there next time. Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you a mate on a, on a headboat? I guess I did that uh, three or four years. Uh-huh. And then, um, you know, the whole time, uh, you know, uh, the, I had the, the, the urge to get out there for that because of that picture that I saw with that white marlin. I wanted to get offshore, and um, I, I I was the one that was like, "Hey, look! The worst part of the headboat is the was at least back then. Um, you know, those old natural engines was a stern. Nobody, no mates wanted to clean the stern because it was just black at the end of every trip and nasty. I'm like, "Hey, I'll do it." Mm-hmm. Because I knew that when I was back there and I was scrubbing that stern with pride, all those charter boat captains were watching me do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's some, that, that's some of the best advice you could give to anybody would be, you know, take that, take the worst job and do the best job, uh, at it, you know, take pride in doing the, the worst job. And, uh, is that what happened? Like some of the, some of the charter boat guys t- took notice of your work ethic and, and how you were working and gave you a shot or what? Yes. I, I was just so blessed the way it all came about, um, I was going to a local community college and uh, there was a girl in there. Her boyfriend was the captain, um, just got his captain's license. He had been a, a mate at, down out of Oregon Inlet and um, Oregon Inlet, you know, that's a, that's a tough place to fish out of. There's a, a lot of talent there. Yeah. And I kind of figured that if I were going to make the jump, I wanted to make the jump to a captain that could teach me that how to be the best mate I could possibly be. Hmm. And I thought that would be the right move. And his name was Kenny Sexton. Um, if you saw the video I sent you, he was, he played the part of the, of the Aninga boat, um, in that reenactment. Okay. And, uh, and there's a funny story about that. I can, I can tell you later on when we get to that, what happened that day. Okay. And so when you were, um, when you met with, with Kenny, uh, how did you, how did you make the jump from the head boat to his boat? I want to say the scariest thing was telling my captain 
on the head boot that I was making the switch. Uh huh. I was absolutely, I mean, I, there was the, a tremendous amount of respect for him. Not only was he a family friend, a good friend, you know, that my grandfather, who was in the Coast Guard, had fished with all the time. It was, he was a big guy and he was tough. I mean, he <laughs> well, was, he's he, also he, the he guy was, that he, gave you your shot, right? Like he's, he's the guy that gave you your opportunity. That is a hard thing for, for a young person to do when somebody gives you an opportunity and you do really well. And then it's, it's obviously time to move on. How did he take it? He took it great. Hmm. He just smiled and laughed. He goes, I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Well, see, that's, you, that's somebody that's truly in your, that's somebody that's truly in your corner, right? Like that's somebody that gives you the opportunity and is happy as you, when you move on, he's, he's happy for you as opposed to somebody that, you know, harbors some resentment that you're, that you're moving on. And he did a good job of mentoring me. For example, there was uh so there was four head boats out of Rudy Inlet and um, he had three of them. And one of them was a cruise boat, but on Saturday mornings we would fish. And here I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. And on a Saturday morning, he would say, all right, John, you're going to the Miss Virginia beach. Um, boat would be packed. They had the worst tackle and I'd always get the new mates, um, to go along. And I appreciated that because he put me in that difficult situation and I had to figure, I had to do problem solving to figure out how are these people going to have a good time? How are we going to catch fish? And how am I going to lead these guys at this young age? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a great, that's a great opportunity. It's a, it's really, um, interesting that you saw it that way because not everybody would see it that way. You know, like some people might see it as dang, I just got put in the worst situation. Like he must not like me. <laughs> I don't know. Or, or something, you know, but, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can look at things a little bit differently and, uh, going for a long swim, make it, will make you do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to talk about your long swim. Um, so you're, you're on, you're on that boat, Kenny's boat, Kenny Sexton. Mm -hmm. And then how long do you mate on that one? So I was with him for a couple of years and then, uh, you know, and that was a 43 foot Sunny Briggs. Um, and we ran the owner fished a fair amount, you know, just kind of getting into it. He didn't have a whole lot of charters, but we, we fished fairly steady. Um, an opportunity came to move on to a bigger boat. And, um, it's our, so this boat, the next boat I moved to was, a. Uh, 55 Gwaltney and it was built and it was, it was called the no problem. And the gentleman that owned it ironically was the father of the gentleman that I run the boat for now, which is a 66 Viking. So really? uh, kind of full circle there is neat history. So, I, and I fished on that boat um, for, I guess that was a year. And then I had an oppor then the opportunity came available to fish on the boat that fished the most out of Virginia beach was a boat called the high hopes. Um, we would book a year in advance and we started fishing May through October every single day. Hmm. Nice. And then what, what are you fishing for? What's the season up there? What, what, what does it start in May? And then how do you, how do you go through your year? So May, um, the kind of, kind of, well, and then, you know, as I was fishing for him, it kind of, it, so we would fish for rockfish for a little while. Once that season kind of opened back up when we were allowed to fish for him again. Um, and then from there, May can be kind of tricky. It all depends on how the eddies come in off the Gulf Stream. Hmm. Um, and a lot of times they'll kind of circle in from up maybe above the – between the Washington and Norfolk Canyon and kind of and, – and push down. Sometimes water will come on to the backside of a, the cigar, which is offshore about 60 miles right about where the Virginia-North Carolina line is. Um, because when it get that's when the Gulf Stream gets off of Hatteras, um, which is North Carolina, it just kind of shoots out. So it's it's kind of, it's kind that's beyond our range. Um, so – we start off blue fins offshore, 
um, when they would show up in, in, in June. And then, and there'd be bluefish mixed in as well. Mm-hmm. And then from there, then the, you know, more steady yellowfin fishing, um, occasional blue marlin. And, and then come August, you know, our white marlins would really start to show up a little bit better. September, uh, you know, that's when, that's when we, we switch gears and white marlin fishing. And then, you know, and, and wahoo fishing would get a little bit better that time of year as well. But the white marlin fishing, that's like the, that's the, that's the, that's your whole year. Like you're waiting for that. That's like our tarpon season or something. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Get jacked up over that. Yeah. And then that's when, uh, you're fishing, you're fishing super hard during those times, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's great. I've never done it up there, but, um, certainly, you know, one of my friends, Captain Scott Walker, he's been up in that area a whole bunch and has done a lot of the white marlin fishing. And then, then, uh, actually even rich has some history up in that area. My, my partner on the TV show, he, he was a mate, um, up there somewhere, Oregon Inlet, I think is where he, okay. he started, but just for a short time before he came back to the keys. But yeah, I do know about that area and it's, it's legendary with the with the captains and the talent and the the boats that are up there um really you know that's that's like that's like deciding you're gonna be a flats guide in isle rod or key west like I, you know i was thinking about this the other day you know if if this part of the conversation came up and that's exactly what i was like i guess what like bud mary's or one of those yeah. places there's so many guys that you know you got to back up and you got to go in that slip at the end of the day and then you don't and you, it it sucks getting stacked up and um <laughs> That's what it, I, I, I would compare Oregon Inlet to to grad school. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, you have different techniques that you learn. You know, wherever you are, whether it's Palm Beach, whether it's the Keys, whether it's Bermuda, or wherever. Um, but when you fish out of Oregon Inlet, that's a a blend of of some of the some of the best. And when sure. you have to fish against those guys every day, it makes you it makes you better a better fisherman. Yeah, real fast, like super fast. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate learning ground for, for really anything is surround yourself with people that are so much better than you. And you're, you're, you're actually the worst one there. You don't realize it, but you're getting better very, very quickly. You still feel like you're the worst one there, but sooner or later, man, one of these day, one, one day, you know, you, you realize, wow, I, I learned a thing or two. Um, but when you're surrounded by people that are just so much better and they're just, just smoking you every day think you're picking things up it's frustrating and it's sometimes depressing but you know sooner or later you you enter a tournament or you do something or you have a big day and you're like huh another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I guess I can hang in here with these guys. Like, you know, that's a pretty good thing. Down there, it starts just even trying to get out to where you fish and crossing the bar. Yeah. Um, you know, I can think about years ago, and this is back when everybody still kind of had their keels on their is uh, going out after a big storm, you know, you wouldn't really exactly know where the channel is sometimes. And I remember going out and, you know, somebody pile up and then somebody go next, next boat, go on the other side, they pile up and the next boat would go on the other side of the first boat, they pile up, there's the channel. Mm. Um, but things after people started cutting their keels off, things got a little bit more cautious and we weren't going that fast back then either. Yeah. But um, some great fishermen down there and I, I love, I really enjoyed my opportunities to fish out of there. 
Yeah. And so that leads you to, to what in your next boat in your career? So, um, from, from there, I, you know, I, I was end up going to old dominion university and, uh, getting my bachelor's degree in environmental health and safety. And, um, actually my senior year, I was doing a project with the department of defense, um, related to doing noise testing. Um, so in Virginia beach, we have the master jet boat base for the East coast is, uh, Oceana. I was doing testing along the flight line of Oceana, um, to save the, just doing a comparison that would save the government, um, about 30 years worth of, of work. Wow. And, uh, and I finished that project up and I graduated and, uh, um, DOD came to me and offered me a position as an industrial hygienist. And I told him I'm going fishing. <laughs> so, um, from there I ended up going to, uh, I've graduated actually in, in December. So then packed my truck up and went to sailfish Marina in Palm beach. I mean, I had some friends down there, but didn't have a job and was able to get a job within a couple of days of being on the dock. So, um, then I want to say Palm Beach Marina for the sport fishing side of it, or offshore fishing side of it. That was the hub for the world. Mm. Of course, it's kind of spread out so much now. Um, but at Sailfish Marina, the charter dock, the best mates would show up there every December. Um, so I was so fortunate to be able to to fish with some guys that are crushing it now as captains. Um, mm. We were we had a we had a, we formed a great brotherhood um, there and the guys in Oregon and even the guys here at home. Yeah, but um, it's it was neat. Yeah, so learned a lot of techniques. So when you packed your truck up, you felt like you had been at grad school at, in uh, already, and what did you expect the next place to be? That when you're going to to, to the Sailfish Marina in Palm Beach, um, what did you I, think? I didn't know what was going to happen. It was kind of scary, you know. I was just going on a whim, like, "Hey, I'm going to go down there. Either I'm going to not get a job, I'm going to pack my truck back up and head back home." I was fortunate that I had family that I could stay with, and. Um, you know, getting that job and learning those techniques down there with the, with the, the uh, kite fishing and the live bait and was definitely different than what we did um, for billfish up here in Virginia Beach. And just it was for me, it was kind of scary in a way, because, you know, once I ended up getting on a charter boat down there, it was I would look at the book and it was like the book. You know, you had some a couple of trips, you know, going out for a couple of weeks. But I'm used to looking at a book and, you know, people are getting off the boat and they're like, hey, we want the same day next year. Right. And there weren't that many, and pretty much most of us were like that then, but we always seemed to fish it almost every day. So mm -hmm. that was, a, uh, it was pretty good. Um, I've learned a lot of techniques there that I use today as far as tight maneuvering on fish because of the live baiting and able to, to you know, when we're up here tuna fishing, we want to keep our spread out as much as we can to keep those bites coming. Mm -hmm. um, because some, you know, there's times when we're fishing, shoot, we may, we may be trolling 15 rods, you know, just for that one wham that we'll get. Um, just be in the right place, right time when they stick their heads up. So down there, that's where I learned, all right, I can apply this to bill fishing as well. Hmm. Um, just not quite as many rods, but I don't want to get off this hole. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot about just kind of showing up in a different place and working your way up from boat to boat. And when you, when you show up at a, at a really high end, you know, place that's got, legendary fisherman and the best mates ever. And you're a kid that just graduated college. I mean, you, you have a lot of kids that listen to this podcast right now that, that are kind of in a similar situation and they, they want to make a living fishing and they want to be a, a mate. And maybe they're thinking, you know, I'm going to do that. What, how do you, how do you do that? Like as a, as a mate, like, what do you do? Just walk the dock, like 
talk to the to the existing mates, talk to the captains? What I mean, how does that process work when you did it, and how would it work now? Do you think what 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 have, what's changed? That's a great question. Number one, you show up and you show respect. You know, that's where I think, and you know, some other captains and I we've been we've talked about this recently. Just some of that respect isn't there anymore, and I, you know, and I think that there's other issues that are behind that. But just show up, be there, show your willingness to ride, or do whatever it takes to get on that boat and to show yourself. Don't stab your friends in the back. Be open, honest, and. Don't fall into the trap of talking mess about people. Mm-hmm. You know, keep your head on straight. And when I say keep your head on straight, watch the partying. Um, I've seen so many mates fail because the ego and the pride takes over their life and they go down a wrong road. Hey, I, I was close to going down the wrong road myself. Um, one of the best fishermen that I know, I mean, he went down that road and it was just, it was painful to watch. Um, but you know, first of all, you you got to be there. You got to show. You got to even though you're, there's no reason for you to be there at six o'clock in the morning. I mean, up up here you'd want to be there at four four thirty in the morning. But there's no reason. But there is a reason for you to be there and mm-hmm. showing them that you're going to show up. Because for me, that's one of the most important things to know that my mate is going to be there and on that dock when I walk down there, and he should be there before me, and he should be starting to take those rods out and take care of my stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then one day somebody doesn't show up, and maybe you get a maybe you get your shot. And that's that's funny you say that because that's how Oregon Inlet's worked for so many years. Is they have a a, a big uh, the Oregon Fishing Center they have a porch, and there's guys that are standing on that porch every day waiting for their chance for somebody not to show up. Mm-hmm. And typically, what calls somebody not to show up? Well, they went partying the night before and they <laughs> had a little bit too much. Yeah, yeah, that happens to a lot of people. Um, but then that's your shot. And you got to be ready to take it. And it's the same. It's the same in so many different places. But um, yeah, you just keep showing up and keep keep taking. You know, you need some help cleaning the fish. You need some help cleaning your boat. Just do it. Don't ask for money. Just do it and do a good job, right? And then sooner or later, you might get an opportunity. Yeah, come on and ride along with us today. Yeah, because that is that's so hard to get that invite. Um, I mean, myself, I love to find, you know, a mate that's just wanting to learn, um, like even last summer, um, you know, my main mate, he was pretty good, but then we had another kid that kind of just, that, that went along. He was always on the boat, always trying to help, um, and enjoy the opportunity to teach. So that's another thing for a mate to be, be is teachable. You know, I've been doing this for a while now and, you know, with like a lot of other people, but my attitude is this. This may be your first day ever offshore, but there's probably something I could learn from you. Mm-hmm. As long as I'm open to that, I'm going to get better because you, there's no way to know it all. The day you think you start to know it all, you you get you get humbled real quick. Yeah, isn't that right? That is <laughs> that is that is exactly right. That's a white belt mentality. We talk about it on this all the time of, uh, on this podcast of the the white belt mentality. Just looking around, you know, when you're a white belt, you walk into a martial arts gym or you're, it's your first day at wrestling practice. There is not a single person in there that you can't learn from. It's you. It's obvious. Everybody is kicking your ass all day, and then you know sooner or later, but you you get a little bit better, and maybe you're the one that's teaching a little bit. But you should try to maintain that white belt mentality, the, the same mentality that you came in on day one, and you're looking at everyone trying to figure out, well, 
How can I learn from them? How can I learn from them? What are they doing? And then if you can keep that to the later, later uh, times when you are, maybe you're the best one there someday. But if you continue to be have that white belt mentality and looking around like you're explaining uh, that, you know, even somebody that is their first day of offshore, you might be able to learn something from them, something. That's the white belt mentality, like just an open mind all the time, always trying to learn something from somebody. That's that's super important. So how from from Palm Beach, how did you end up making it down to Key West? So I uh, so. The only times I had really gone to Key West in that time frame was just going on, you know, maybe going down there to go fishing or vacation or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so then I ended up coming back to, to Virginia Beach, you know, once that season ended down, I went to Mexico, fished Mexico in the Bahamas, came back to Virginia Beach, uh, or I'm sorry, I came back to Hatteras for a new boat that was, had just got delivered. And um, we fished there May and June. Um, then we came up to Virginia Beach, ran our charters out of, out of here. Um, then it was back to Christmas time again, time to head back down to Palm beach. And, uh, went down there and got a job on a boat called the major motion, um, with, uh, Jimmy Garner, great captain, um, taught me a lot. And then the boat became, we became listed. Um, so you know how that is when the owner decides to list the boat, it's big question marks. Mm. And, uh, he's, he's like, John, I, I really, I, I don't, I don't, if you look, go look for something else, I don't blame you. So, um, it, uh, through a friend of mine, uh, Gary Richardson, he's a great captain. He told me about a, a boat that was up in Stewart that needed a mate to go to, uh, Mexico, Belize and Guatemala. Went up there, met Eric, great guy, but loved it from Australia. Awesome accent. Um, you know, fell in love with him, you know, from the get go. It was a 56 foot Jim Smith, um, nice fast boat. And, um, the owners of the boat were from Texas. Um, boat was based in Port Aransas and. We went to the Bahamas um, because it was, and it was the owner's wife and his daughter, and just to kind of feel things out because we were going to be together for three months on a 56 foot boat. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that gets pretty tight, pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, so things seemed like they were going to gel well, and um, went back to Stewart after the Chub Key tournament, packed her up, and um, bound for uh, for Stock Island for to, uh, Oceanside Marina, where we were going to stage for our crossing. Wow. And uh, so we were one of the few boats that could make that crossing in a day. We had the speed and we had the fuel. Now most boats can make it in a day. Uh, and there was one other boat called the Lucky Punch, and we were going to stage and cross together. But uh, we got down there and they'd already left. Hmm. So, but you said that that boat was in, the owner was from Port Aransas. So did they keep that boat in Port Aransas and then crossed over and then go to the they, Bahamas? Is that they how kept it, it worked? And, and Stewart. Oh, they, they kept okay. It. Yeah. Right. Yes, sir. Okay. Cool. So the big the this is the beginning of of really of the the real story is when you you know you're you're at Oceanside Marina, which I used to work out at Oceanside Marina too, um, and uh, this is this is the uh, beginning of your story, like your real your real story. Um, so you're you're getting you're getting ready to cross and you're going to cross in one day you're expecting that it's going to cross in one day the weather's looking good enough to to go beautiful beautiful and uh and then walk us through like like what happens next so um well before we get into that part of it you know so in 1997 was the strongest el nino in record history uh-huh um those uh, after, and I don't know if you remember that after effects were still lingering 
into um, you know the the spring of of, of 1998. Yeah. So we had staged, uh, you know. So we when, there, you, when you're talking about the after effects, like what what's happening? Um, just with the way storms would come up. So um, and actually, we had before I even left to come down. There's a gentleman that was a he's a captain up here. He was uh, he also worked for the DOD. His son was was you know probably 12 years old at the time. And he was like, Hey, look, I want Neil to make the crossing with over just experience going what it's like going to Mexico. I'm like, sure. That's great. You know, you can you ride with us. Um, so, um, Milton and I, we, we were communicating back and forth about it. And like that week that we, that was a terrible, uh, you know, winter. I mean, it was just blowing like crazy. Um, fished a lot of rough days. And, you know, when I was in Bahamas, you know, I was like, Mill, I think it'll be a bad idea. You know, I just, I, would, I want him to be able to make, get that experience, but he's going to get stuck in, 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 in Stock Island um, because we may not be able to make the crossing. We don't know what our weather window is going to mm-hmm. be. Back then, the weather um, long offshore forecast wasn't the same as it is now. We used uh, – Eric had got our weather routers, and um, <laughs> this is so – being at ocean, you know, you can't fish in the marina. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> then the, what they would go home at like at like what, midnight, 11 o'clock, something like that. The yeah. marina staff would leave. So, of course, when they were gone, psh, it was time to tarpon fish. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so anyway, so I was out that night um, just tarpon fishing, like probably till one o'clock in the morning, something like that. Then I uh, went and crashed. And, you know, we want to get a good early start. So get get start, get underway by at five o'clock. So I idled on out there so we could go ahead and push up um, when we were in the main channel. And um, that's what we did, you know. Eric pushed her up. Beautiful ride. Um, just absolutely gorgeous. Following the sea, two to three foot. Um, big rollers. You know, couldn't ask for a prettier ride. Hardly, you know, hardly even 10 knots of wind. And um, we were going along, and all of a sudden we heard this is when we were up and running. I also heard bam. Like, bam. Like, what in the world was that? And for some reason, so that boat, the way the refrigerator was set up, when it would rock, the refrigerator sometimes would open up and everything would come flying on the floor. <laughs> so a lot of times on that boat we were running, I would like go down there and I would like lay down and take a nap up against the refrigerator to keep that rascal closed. <laughs> so we'd have to chase the mayonnaise everywhere. And um, we heard that bamming. So I went downstairs and I saw – so on some sport fish, you know, you'll see that they have the double doors that are in the middle. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes there how they function is there's a track above, kind of like a barn doors that people yeah, have yeah. in their houses yeah. now. But the thing about it is it's a boat. So boats rock and you could, they're, they'd be slamming if you didn't have a system there. So basically there would be a cable that goes around there and that cable's pinched so that the doors, no matter where they are, they counterbalance each other as the boat rocks. And one of those pulleys had come, the, the, the tightener had come loose on it. Um, so I told Eric, I said, good, make good, pull it back all the way. So, you know, he had an idle and I fixed it and all happy. He was working good. So I climbed up on the bridge. And so when you would go onto the bridge of that boat, um, it had a tower on it as well. So a lot of times when people see a sport fish vessel, they'll see like a full enclosure of curtains. Mm-hmm. Some of those Florida boats back then didn't have that. They just had like a, like, a, like you would see on a center console, you mm-hmm. know, a curtain, mm-hmm. a straight up and down curtain right yep. in front of the console. That's what it had. And, um, the passage went to the right or to the starboard side, um, to get around to the bench in the front. So that's where I was standing. And, um, I, you know, no problem, Eric. Got it fixed. I'll get some Loctite on it when we get there. So he was in the process of pushing the throttles up. And um, we were just kind of like looking at each other, you know, just talking about that, laughing, joking. And um, and then look forward to see something like, Tom, I've never seen anything like it for my life. I'm, you know, fished a lot of days and 
never seen anything like this. And um, like I said, a two to three foot following sea. Jim Smiths are pretty good boats in the following sea. And we've all like been in situations before, you know, even with a flats boat where, you know, you kind of come off and you stuff a little bit, maybe. It wasn't really that. It wasn't that kind of situation. It was like a whole. I don't see how a wave could be so steep without breaking. It's I've, that's one of the things that's haunted me over the years. And writing the book has given me some help with that. But when she went off of it and she fell, it was she, when she came down the face of that wave. It was a sharp enough angle that I free fell forward. And as I was falling forward, I was able to grab hold of one of the tuna tower legs and then their little rail that went across the front of the brow, and grab hold of that to. You know, to keep from going any further. And of course, Eric, you know, at the wheel, he had pulled her out. I mean, he, we weren't up to speed, but he had the good, you know, he was able to get her out of gear real quick as she was going down that wave. And um, when she hit the bottom, it was just the most god awful. <clears throat> I mean, hearing the bulkheads breaking inside. Wow. You know, and, and as I remember ducking down up in that corner, I remember seeing, started to see a crack come from just like where the where the where the where the cabin meets the front deck and the house meets the front deck it was probably just you know just a little ways a couple feet in front of that starting on the on the starboard side and running across to the port wow um and i was expecting to i still you know, even though i saw what i saw and heard what i heard i was still and i got hit by water from so i don't know where the water came from that hit me but i was expecting to feel still feel a ride up but then she just stopped and she just kept going. Oh man. And, um, and that's when, you know, when I, from the perspective of where Eric was at the helm, you know, he couldn't really see that the bow deck like that. Mm-hmm. Um, of what we you know, what was going on down there. So then that's when I turned right around to him and I said, Oh my God, she's going down. Wow. And the moment I did that, Eric went just like this, reached to his left to the, to the console box to where our, our radios were. And they were already dead. So that shows what kind of implosion that happened within that vessel. Oh. Um, you know, and that's nothing against Jim. I don't know what boat could, I've never seen a force like that. I don't know what boat could have survived that so, wave. So I read this in your book and I was trying to visualize what, what it was looking like. So a couple of times, you know, many times you talk about going down the face of this wave. So what did, was the wave in front of you coming towards you like this or fr- coming from behind you? It was like a hole is a better way to describe it. It's like a so hole like in we the were, ocean. Uh, we may have been climbing. I don't know, but it was, but it wasn't like you, there a big wave in front of us. Like we went up and the RPMs went down and all that. Right. It was like, no, it was just like, like driving off a cliff. Dropped off a cliff. That's the, and I, and I don't know. I can't tell you how, how big the wave was because, you know, as I was falling, I mean, obviously it was a 56 footer and the whole thing kind of fell down into it. And I can't tell you how long it was because my focus was forward, and so was Eric's right. forward um, at the right. time. Yeah, it's it's really it's really a, a weird thing because you know all of us have been offshore a lot, never seen anything like this, and uh, you know those boats, like a you know a big sport fish boat, that's a big durable boat, and for it to I don't know. I was just trying, when I was reading the book, I'm just trying to, to visualize like how in the world that could happen. And then you even have a chapter in here about you kind of trying to figure out how in the world it could happen, what it was. And like, do you have any other ideas of what it was? Like, could that have been caused by like some kind of a tectonic shift or an earthquake or a 
some kind of volcano or like what would cause something like that to happen? And it could be a one, one in 2000, 10,000 year kind of thing. Right. And I wish, that's, I wish I had the answer because that would bring so much closure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I kind of look at it, Tom, is this, that I don't know what calls it. It doesn't matter what calls it because the good that's come out of what, what out of that wave. Um, it was, that's where that with that, like you said, with the research, when I read that and realized that they didn't have the first rogue wave recorded until what, like 19, was it like 1995, 1996 on that Dretmer oil rig when that wave passed by because prior to that, it was always, you know, mechanical issues, you know, operator error because it didn't fit within that equation that they had the logarithmic equation they had for what a wave could be. It was outside of that box. Right. And uh, I watched a number of documentaries about it and, and that really brought me a lot of healing. Um, realizing that, that, Hey, this isn't what this thing that you saw out there isn't what you were taught a wave was because they didn't even know this existed when you were in school. Hmm. Yeah. It's so, it's so bizarre. You, you actually talk about it in your book about that. Um, the thing that you just referenced there, that certain tower that was, that it recorded. Um, tell me, tell me more about that. What, what was going on with that tower where they recorded this rogue wave that you just, that you just referenced. I'm looking for it in your book right now. I'm not. I'm not yeah. So it. it would be probably two, like two thirds of the way back. Um, but yeah, so what it was is it just happened to be, um, an oil rig up in the North sea and it actually had sensors on it. And, um, even when you, if you were to like doing the research, I went back to, to look at buoys. There were hardly any buoys in that lower Gulf region back then yeah. to get, to have data. Um, so looking through it and, um, Again, they talked about that logarithmic equation, which a wave could only reach at a, at a certain height. And then there was to have anything outside of that, it was a one in 10,000 year event. So after that wave was hit, what it did is it threw the marine architecture world upside down. And it, and because here, all right, here's this thing out here. And then the insurance companies were like, oh, man. So what's so we have these ships that are out there because they we don't I mean, I know that I even heard of ships that would get stretched out on, on a rogue wave hmm. um, hanging in the middle, break and sink. And usually there's no survivors. Um, and so I could see how this could do that. Wow. So with that, then what they did is they took satellites and and uh, and I guess it was in that close to that time frame when it happened to us and they took and they just went pass after pass after pass scanning the surface of the ocean um looking to see if all right so this thing that hit this oil rig are there any more of them out there when they got the data back they were blown away how many more rogue waves they were out there really um by definition i don't think really this was kind of an extreme wave because it was so much larger than the Anything around, so that's why I think kind of where you were going with maybe like a plates thing happened or something happened on the bottom because the, at the point where you went down is, is it is kind of it's it's most close to thousand fathoms so it's you know and it, it kind of there is shelves that come up so something could have happened down there and it pulled I don't know for sure um, so even with that data that they received from those satellites they even were looking at changing you know restricting route, shipping routes um, to keep them out of those keep the ships. Um, really, out of those areas where now, they were seeing just, more of the waves. It's worth noting that this is only 90 miles off Key West, right? This area that we're talking about. 90 yes, miles sir. south, southwest, or, or west-southwest. Yes, sir. And, and Closer to Cuba than to um, Yeah, but man, US. I mean, that is not that far away from where center consoles are going. No. A lot, on a daily basis. 
from Key West, right? I mean, like, you know, if you're going to the fort, that's 75 miles away. And people go beyond the fort a bunch. And, uh, I mean, and so what we're talking about isn't like some kind of crazy, absolute middle of the ocean kind of thing. This is where, it's where people are going on a routine basis for the most part. And I think, you know, one, we, we were, we were in the Gulf stream and we were in the, in the deep water, but mm-hmm. still, I mean, that thing's going to hit, it's going to come up to, to shallow water at some point in time. And, and how far are you going to be from that? I mean, even down there, cause you're so close to the edge, especially when you're fishing, um, what on that, on more on that, that Southeastern side, um, you're right there at it. Yeah. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what, where this thing hit. I don't know what happened beyond it being with us, I did hear somebody say a story of, and I, I didn't, couldn't find the research on it, but I did hear something about close to then a way rogue wave hitting somewhere down in the keys. Hmm. So maybe there was a, something else that happened that was related to the yeah, situation. Yeah, but it wasn't like, us. it wasn't like, you know, Duval street was covered in eight feet of water no. or anything like that. Like, like this, I, I mean, I was living in Key West at that point and it wasn't, I mean, you know, no, you would know about that. Like that. I don't remember anything about that happening, but the point being is that that is a weird thing to happen and, and it happened yes, to you. And so, and obviously your book goes, goes into far greater detail than we're going to go on this, uh, on this, this podcast this time. But, um, so you go down, right? Like the, mm-hmm. it, and, and so this happens from the time you fix that door on the, on the salon to when you're down. How, what, what are we looking at as far as the time? It was this quick. So when I turned around to Eric and like, Oh my gosh, he's going down. He's a, get the life jackets, buddy. So what have we done? We had, you know, we had packed tents. We packed our, all of our stuff on top of the life jackets because it's a daytime crossing Our e-perb and life raft were inside the salon, um, which is common is common. You know, Hey, hey we're ready. We got it in the side of salons. We, and we had that discussion that morning is nice. Should we take the e-perb and life raft out and put it in the cockpit? No, nothing ever happens during the daytime because we're always so scared of running at night, and um, that's what. So that's where that was. And all right, buddy, get the life jacket. So I go around the front. I start pulling stuff out to try to get, and I just can't get that tent. I guess you know maybe things had shifted or whatever, and it's not coming out. And then I look and I see that quickly with you know within a minute or two minutes the water is getting close to the level of the house because she, when she went down, she start she listed over to her port side bow down. Um, and the, the water was all the way to the top. Now, before we left, I just seen the movie Titanic. So I'm like, man, I don't this is the only one that's sucking me. So I'm like, I gotta get out of here. So, um, so I knew that I had to abandon cause I wasn't going to be, I didn't have time to get the life jackets. Um, I was just, I was like, man, I just hope, I hope Eric was able to get in there and get the Perman life raft. And so I, I literally, I stepped from the bridge cap down to the water. And from there I swam, you know, I kind of swam around to the cockpit. When I got around to the cockpit, I looked and I saw Eric, he was up inside in the cockpit up like in the shear where the door is. And he was just punching the door as hard as he could with his fist. So those panes of glass and those doors are kind of small. So they're pretty strong. And what had happened is as she buckled, those double doors were wedged locked to lock shut. Mm-hmm. Um, by the by the pressure of the twisted boat do you ever think about what if you hadn't fixed that door like you you know that yes. one door was kind yeah, of broken man. like we'd been running you'd been running and and you would have been we'd, running we'd have been and a, hit the wave 
right? We'd have, we we'd have, we'd have been going, you know, close to thirty knots and gone into. I couldn't. Have, I I had never thought about that till I started. Till I was writing the book, and when it hit me, I'm like, oh dear Lord, thank you so much for that door being messed up. Because could you imagine what it would have been like that that impact? Well, no. I mean, it's really just honestly, it's hard to imagine just just any any of this. Like, just all of a sudden, there's just this crazy hole in the ocean or a wave or whatever you want to call it that you've never experienced before that your captain had never experienced before that I doubt anybody listening to this podcast has ever experienced before, but nobody's denying that it didn't, didn't happen. I'm just saying it's just hard to fathom any of it and, and how quickly it happened. And um, I don't know. It's just bizarre. The whole thing is is like it's very very bizarre and strange and and the fact that where it happened like just just ninety miles off Key West I mean you guys were just getting started right like you're not even I mean you're that's kind of like you're just getting getting you know your sea legs under you like okay like this is going to be a good crossing things are seem to be going okay we fixed the door and wham good day yeah. That, and that was the thing too. So, you know, as I was doing the research um, and watching these documentaries, you know, and there's some tough, ca- every one of the, you could, there was, there was something you could see in each of the, I mean, for me, I mean, to this day, it's when I, when I think about it, it's hard to hold my composure because mm-hmm. it was that terrifying. And I didn't, I mean, this book helped me realize that, yes, there's a form of a post-traumatic stress associated with it, but I mean, it was they, these guys are all. You can tell that they're rock. I mean, you can't you can't put into words what it's like. It's not. I don't think it's the words are there, and how terrifying it is. Um, and there's even to this day when I'm running, there's certain things that'll happen where I'll where there'll be a feel that's similar to um to that day. And I, I mean, my whole body just like locks up for a mm. second. I was like, I gotta snap out of it and and, and pay attention to what's going on. But um, there, I you know I did hear of a boat out of Oregon Inlet that um that you know he had seen something similar to this and he's like man it's like it's unreal and he uh he was shook mm. and and that was a thing that brought me you know when i started this whole project of writing tom i was i prayed and i was like god it's not gonna be easy number one i had to give up fishing for a seat for a summer so that was that was that that, that stunk bad mm-hmm. um but the other thing was is please put the right people in the right places so there's a friend of mine that um he was a marine and in, in, during in kosovo and tough guy good guy i mean we knew a lot about each other but and this is one of the stories in the book related to his grandfather at the end of world war ii was in a typhoon and now he knew his grandfather had some type of a bad post-traumatic stress related to he didn't know if it was because of you know world war ii was pretty bad war and he also lost his son and on his oldest son on the onset of Vietnam, he didn't know if it was something like that. Well, finally, when he got back, because the one time they sat down and they told war stories and it wasn't anything in battle. It was that storm. And he had to go out on deck to secure some landmines on the, on the ship that he was on. And I have the ship the ship's name in the book. And while they were out there in that storm, you know, his, his best friend was also on deck securing. And uh, they went through, they, they took a, a, a crazy wave. And um, basically, it took his best friend gone. You know, they they couldn't go back and search for him in, the, in those sea conditions. But it was that that wasn't the battle. It was the wave that rocked his grandfather's world. Wow! Um, you know, it was in the way he kind of says, like, "Man, that's something that's outside of our ability to to. We have no control over." It. Oh, so, so so big. That was uh, like yes, sir. The, the sea, the ocean, the just 
it's it's so big and out of your control when when you get into that situation but you know i don't know i mean you 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 as a captain you know you think about the weather a lot and what's safe to leave the dock and you you know inevitably you get out in some stuff that you feel like is a little bigger than you should be out in maybe even sometimes you made the wrong call you did something you shouldn't have done you learned from that mistake and it it scared scared you pretty bad you know maybe you didn't let the customers know or whatever but it's like dude that could have gone could have gone bad in a hurry so i'm not going to do that again ever and uh and especially but go ahead think about that with what y'all do um you know especially you know with, with open I mean, at least we have a bout of shed water y'all don't have that opportunity i mean if, if you you know dip into a couple well, I mean, it, it could it could easily happen, and it could happen in a in a place that seems harmless. I mean, you could stuff two or three waves, and that and that's it. You're going down um, in, in a 17 foot skiff on a pretty nice day. You know that could that could easily happen, and and uh, or bay boat, or you know, it, it could it could certainly happen. Um, but this is something entirely different. That this this very very strange thing and you know the the story goes on to you know your survival in the water which is i mean that's that's the main main part of the of of the of the story is these crazy things that happened that allowed you to survive like one being that you brought your surfboard and that surfboard somehow managed to make it to the surface to give you something to hold on to and move move around um but the that part of the story of 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 just what are you going to do now that you're in the middle of this ocean nothing to hang on to except a cooler like that's <laughs> i don't know if, yeah, if we didn't have that i would long. encourage anybody to read this book it's 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 uh it's a crazy story of just, and especially that it's so close to home. Like it's, it's 90 miles from Key West and not, not, not in Cuba, like 90 miles from Key West, the direction that a lot of people go. Um, so anyway, your, your, your story of, of survival in the water. Um, do you want to, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, we can. Uh, so it's, <sighs> When this happened, you could have gone to any dock in the world and you could have brought this story up and you'd have heard the same thing. Regardless of what their their personal beliefs were, you, they'd have said, this, God save those boys out there. And that's what it's the truth. Um, so when I started to re-explore this, that was kind of the basis of it. So when Eric and I were, you know, when she, we, we, when we cleared her, um, so what had happened is as I was over there treading water and he was beating the door, there's one of the halyard lines on the outrigger caught my shoulder and was pulling down. And when it pulled down, you know, I looked up and there's some outriggers, a tower. I'm like, man, that's a lot of stuff that we get hung up in. We got to get away from this thing. So you would think with the boat listing to the port down in the bow, it'd be easiest for us to clear off that low port side, which is where I was swimming. But for some reason, we both cleared directly back off the stern. Hmm. The moment we cleared the stern, she rolled. And this is something else for, you know, for your viewers to keep in mind too, about our abilities within the water. So we think that we can, we can do things that are, but they're beyond our control. 10, 12 knot winds. That's not very, very strong. 
you can't swim that fast though. Mm-hmm. And that's what blew my mind. So we were, you know, of course we, it's almost like, you know, like in the movie perfect storm, you know, we're going to be out of the country for three months. We had a lot of stuff on that boat, the poly balls, you know, for a Mediterranean style dockage and the, some of the other larger coolers we had that were up high in the water. When that little bit of wind caught them, they were like gone so quick that we couldn't catch them. We were able to get hold of that one little bait cooler. And with that, that's when I want to say, I want to say maybe the first miracle was maybe when the boat rolled over and we weren't underneath of it. Cause when she were old, she went down. But the next thing that happened is what blew my mind. Cause Tom, this is something we talked about. Um, you know, it's a lot, some, you know, I talk about it more now, but when we grabbed each, it was some of the smaller bait coolers. When we each grabbed a handle and we grabbed each other, we didn't say, all right, let's do this. We didn't discuss it, but it was within perfect unison of the words, like a choir singing a song. It was our father, which art in heaven, how be thy name, thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we just kept repeating the Lord's prayer because we knew that without a distress call, without an EPIRB, Without a life raft, and we didn't have life jackets at the time. We were going to die because all that and stuff our, went down with the boat. Y- yes, sir. Right, and um, I mean, we knew that, that God was the only thing that could save us. You know where we were. I mean, th- back then we were, there really wasn't a whole lot of traffic in that lower Gulf, unless it was a boat that was you know that was making that crossing um, from Cancun or from from Key West to Cancun or Cancun vice versa. Um, and that's we knew it was a dire situation. So it's funny you bring up the surfboard. The uh, surfboard. I didn't even ask Cap Merrick if I could bring the surfboard until <laughs> that morning we were leaving. Uh, Stuart, I'm like, you know what? The worst thing that happened is he tells me to leave it. So I come walking down the dock with that thing, and I'm like, hey, Cap. Now, granted, I only I just, just started. I only worked for him for like a you know just maybe a week and a half, two weeks because it we went to that Bahamas trip. So he had to be thinking, what in the world is this guy doing carrying that thing down here? And uh, and you know he's like I'm like all right go ahead and bring it but it's staying in your bunk so my bunk was up in the in the V berth in the front so I'm like okay it'll it'll you just have to live up there with me and I'll just have to move it around to sleep because in Cancun there could be pretty good surf sometimes <laughs> so anyway yeah that's where it was and getting to that surfboard was tough you know when I saw that when we finished the Lord's prayer she she popped back up hmm. she was you know capsized upside down with just kind of like a little bit of her bottom and the wheels and rudders I guess it was the air that was in the lazarette was still in there and so Eric went to that. That's why we lost the cooler because he went because, you know, as textbook, I mean, you can live out there a long time if you're out of the water. And um, so that's where he went because we were hoping, yeah, she'll just float and we'll just sit here until somebody rescues. It happens, a little, you know, whether it's a a 12 foot John boat or whether it's a, I don't know, 200 foot yacht. I mean, if you can get out and get your body out of the water on the hull, you're going to have a lot better odds. So I saw the surfboard floating. And so I'm like, Eric, I think I need to get that surfboard. He said, go ahead, buddy. So going to that surfboard, when I hit the diesel fuel, that was, that was, that man, I, I, that was another thing that was hard to put in words, what that sting was like, what it was like, you know, with it in your nostrils, in your mouth and your eyes and, and all that. But, you know, I had to persevere. Through. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't not go through. I, I knew instinctively that I needed to get that surfboard. And um, so made it through the diesel fuel. And, and my first thought was actually a, was a prayer that was, dear Lord, please don't let me throw up. I can't afford to lose this food that's in my stomach. So that's a question that a lot of people ask me about the survival, the survival mindset. What is it like? Um, because we don't know what's going to happen until we get put into a situation. Mm-hmm. Well, the biggest thing you can do to control that situation is be prepared for it. 
So we, with these long runs we have out of Virginia Beach, it's just 60 miles, and back then we were going 21 knots. I had a lot of time, and rather than just lay there being idle um, with nothing to do, I would run drills in my head. That, I mean, I don't, I, may, I don't know if it could be because of a safety guy or what it is, but I'll, if this happened, what would I do? If this happened, what would I do? I was mentally prepared for this, um, but not to the degree that I would that I would really need to, to have to get through it. But anyway, so I got to that surfboard. Got it back to Eric, and when I got the surfboard, I noticed something kind of felt different with it. So I'll just leave that at that and let the readers um, check out why that, what was going on with that, and how critical that was because mm-hmm. it didn't feel it was it wasn't right. Um, it was in, within a board bag. Cool thing was, is it was the bag was um, a brand new bag I had to buy, but that the surfboard is a funny thing. So um, last year, my wife and I we went down to the Keys for. A, you know, for a vacation and towed our boat down there, center, center console down there with us, had some fun. So the book is about to be completed. And so I went to Oceanside. First time I've been back to Oceanside, Tom, <laughs> since it's happened. Doesn't look the same, does it? Holy mackerel. No, <laughs> that's the thing. I'm like, what? All right, so here's Are we at the right the place here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's the ship store? Yeah. And they get there, like a little building up, you know, that little tower. I'm like, well, you know, the ship store was around here somewhere. It's a pretty good tackle yeah. shop they used to have in there. And, um, so anyway, so, you know, so then we walk out there to that, out there to the very end dock. Cause we were out there where the, where the seawall is at the end. And that's where we're tied up. And I showed my wife the slip and that was, that was pretty cool. But then coming back, um, you know, I got to the, I guess that second row where the charter boats are. And there was a guy that was, it was at the end. I don't, I, I wish I could remember his name, but you know, nice. I don't know if it was, a. um, it was about like, I don't know, maybe a 30 foot, 27 foot center console, mm-hmm. um, He's one of the guys down there, and uh, and you know, he just looked at me very nice. Like, is there anything I can help you with? Because you know, I'm like, man, I, I'm just. Is there a ship store here, guys, buddy? They don't have anything here anymore except for ice and fuel. No more tackle. I'm like, okay. And then he goes, well, what, what's up? I goes, well, uh, and I told him, I said, look, I just wrote a book, and I would like this, and it includes Oceanside Marine in it, and I just wondered if they may be interested in carrying the book. And um, so he said, really? Well, what's it about? And I'm like, well, and 1998, you know, I left from here and was lost at sea. Tom, he looked at me. He's like, that was you? Hmm. Yeah, that was me. It was so cool because my wife supports me a lot. And she's been to a lot of, you know, places that I go where I will speak to a group. And she will hear this story. And she hears this story. It's the same story, but it's different every time. And she's seen my friends like at tournaments and stuff like that. And it's funny because I have to tell my mates this. I'm like, look, look, if we're at a tournament, you're going to see other dudes come up and hug me. It's okay. It's, it's just because, you know, they were there then and they, they, you know, they were impacted by it. And so it's just, we're glad to see each other. Yeah. But for him to say, you were the one with the surfboard. And I was like, yeah, that was me with the, that was my surfboard. He goes, you know, you changed my life with that there isn't a time i don't cross anywhere i don't make any moves without having my e-perv out tom it changed the industry because we never thought especially a, a you know a wood boat and a composite boat could go down so quick and um you know and, and obviously she did but uh you know that was i i just i was so um, thankful that she was able to hear it because that just blessed her so much hearing it from somebody else that didn't know me to know that all the struggle, 
all these things that we've dealt with um, related to this incident has helped people. And we're and Tom, as much as I saw it back then, I'm seeing it more now, and it's just it's dude, it's it's humbling. Well, the book the book is a really big step, I think, because it's one thing to tell your story, but it's another thing to to have it in print where it can be shared. Um, you know, and even to tell it on, on something like this, where it can be shared and a lot of people can hear it all at once. That's, that's a big deal. But, but I think that there's probably, um, some sort of cathartic experience of writing it all down. Um, which yes, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't have any idea what that's like because not only have I not been through that, but I haven't also, also haven't written it down like that, but I can just tell from, from your emotions that, it, it was a big deal to write this down and it was a big deal to revisit this story. And it was, it, it took guts. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from the story, but when you, when you do write it all down and you do consider this, you do consider the book finished and published and out there, is there a, a feeling of, of closure to that? Or is it more unanswered questions or, how how do you feel about like writing it all down and publishing it and having it go out into the world in its own little life in just, you know, a nice little neat package with a bow on it. Does that, is there closure or is that so, more questions? So there was some closure initially. And that's based on the conversation that's in the book that Eric and I had on the airplane on the way back. Um, I knew my life back then. I wasn't living the way I should have been living. Um, you know, and I'm thankful for this accident. I don't know. I don't know where I would be if this didn't happen because I was letting pride and ego get its hold on me to take over um, and going down the wrong road. You know, there, there is, it's different. It's, it's just more humbleness to it and more thankfulness for it because now, you know, we go through struggles in life. We're all, it's going to happen. We're in, a, we're in a fallen world. There's going to be struggles. And it's about what are you going to do in that struggle? How are you going to handle it? Are you going to try to weasel your way out of it? Or are you going to go through it to see what you can learn? Because when we go through these struggles, one of the reasons we go through struggles is to be able to help others through there. So the closure comes from knowing that other people are being helped. I just got, I mean, I'm constantly getting messages from people. And um, like the other day, I had to pull over and just, just you know, cry for a minute because of a message a lady sent me about how it's like the things that are going on in her life and, you know, they're terrible things and how now she has peace and now she has direction with mm -hmm. how to handle what she has going on. Tom, it's not me that's doing that. Mm -hmm. It's not me. I'm just, I'm just a guy that likes to fish. I'm a, so if you know, guys that are safety guys or we're, we're technical writers, our stuff is like bullet points, very boring. Um, not a whole lot of creative creativity to it. Um, but this book is able to open those doors within people. And it's not, I'm, I know it's beyond my cape, just like being able to get back to Eric, you know, when I was out there searching for the EPER was beyond my capability. This is what's happening through this is as well. Um, so yeah, there, yes. So the basic answer is yeah, there, there has been some closure. It doesn't take away the pain. So, you know, and with what you were talking about in that, in that section was related to writing it. So, I mean, we've kind of jumped ahead a lot with what all happened, but there did get, there did come to a point where I didn't think I, where I, all hope was lost. Um, 
and with the hypothermia and with being lost and, you know, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm no good, getting me, taking me to the point where my life wasn't worth living because I knew I was going to die. Um, and at that point when I decided to end my life and then, you know, that amazing miracle happened, um, you know, if I could just take and give everybody in this world just a drop of that faith I had at that moment. And that's why every single book I send is like this, never give up, never, never, ever give up. You aren't going to be put, God is not going to put you into something that he didn't prepare you for. Just like that, just like, like I was telling you, like in the, written in the book, it's like, you know, that week when I was in the Bahamas, what would possess me to be in Chub Key on the beach and want to swim to Mama Road a Rock? <laughs> but something did it. And that's what I did every day. I came in, cleaned the boat. I'm swimming. I mean, I'll, if I'm in the water, I'm usually on a surfboard or got a mask and fins on and, but never just swimming to be swimming. So that was, that was, that was me getting my, my body was getting prepared for it. And you know, just like you with your, all you, with the working out you do and, you know, all those sessions that you, that you are teaching people how to work out. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's all preparation. Well, there's a story. <laughs> there's a story about that too. I'll share with you another day that it had that some of those, some of those have helped. I had somebody come up to me and tell me a story about how that had helped in a situation similar to what you're talking about. Um, and it's funny how it all works like that. It, it really, really is. But um, man, your, your story is, is incredible. So let's talk about um, when you, when you decided you were going to write the book, did you, you, did you just have you, had you been thinking about it or did you feel like super compelled to, to finally put this down and how long had it been since you had really revisited this story to the degree that you did when you write the book? So, and that, so initially after it happened, you know, I, I would share Eric and I would share the story. Um, and then, you know, I just, I wanted to be known for, not because I went for a long swim, but because I'm, hopefully sometimes a decent fisherman. That's what I want to be known for. I mean, that's, there's, and that's a discussion that Eric and I have. We have no pride in, in what happened to us out there personally. We, you know, we're just thankful to be alive every day. And we're just, man, you, you, there's a joy there when you know you should be, whether you're a cancer survivor um, or whatever you've been through, there is a joy that comes from knowing that, Hey, I'm alive and I'm on this earth for one more day. It's a plus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, and let, me, let me just ask friends. you something real quick there, um, yeah. because this has been since 1998 that, that this happened. And of course, you're going to feel that way, right? Like, I'm so thankful that I have another day and another day. And having never been through a near-death death, death experience to the degree that you, that you have, I just wonder, does that ever wear off? Like, does... You know, because you have so many things that do wear off. Like you, you have like you, you achieve a milestone or something, and you're just like, man, I'm going to feel like this for the rest, and then two rest of my life, and I'm so happy and thankful that this happened. And two weeks later, you know, it's on to something else. Or, or I just wonder when it's been to that degree um, that you write about in your book. Does did does that ever wear off that you? <laughs> It, it can fade at days, but I think it's easier to get back and check. Mm -hmm. You know, and in the in the writing process, the thing that I want to say was the most difficult. And my editor was like, "All right, John, you got you've been avoiding because it wasn't written in order." Mm -hmm. He's like, "You have got to tell this part of the story. Mm -hmm. You don't want to, but you got to." So that was in that part with committing suicide. Mm -hmm. And my wife said, "Look, man, he's she's like, you woke up three times screaming last night." 
So while you're writing the book that, that that you're having you're revisiting this at night. Mm. But it's Tom. It's I know four lives that were in the process of um, ending that because of this story that they stopped and they're they're alive today. So wow. hey, that's awesome. Every man. every nightmare, every bit of it is worth it for one for you know, for one soul. Yeah. So that's it, awesome. So now, uh, when when it comes to to where you are now, you've got the book out, and and um, what do you see as your uh, as your as your purpose for the next few years? What do you see as your what is this going to change anything with your with your life and how you live it, or or, or are you going to um, do you have any any hopes or dreams or aspirations for the next next five years of or is this just another chapter that you put it in writing and, and it's out there and it's another way for people to access your story? This is the scariest time, the scariest time of my life. Cause I don't know what my future holds. <laughs> None of us do. I don't, I don't None of us do. You're that. just admitting it, right? Like <laughs> you're just, you're just the one that's saying, I have no idea. I'm scared about, I don't know what my future holds, but really when you but think about it, no good, one whatever does. It is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is going to be good, whatever it is. I mean, you, you, you've, you've, really experienced this and you put it down in, in words and, and, uh, you're telling your story and it's, it's, it's an amazing story. And I certainly thank you for telling it here. And so right now we're in the process of, um, uh, the hard, the hardcover and, um, and this, this has opened, um, so many doors. So one of the things that I had a hard time about, like I mentioned that earlier, as we first started the podcast about who my neighbor was, so I spent a lot of time with those, with those guys, those operators. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, that's a tight, that's a very tight world. So everything that's in the book that's related to them, you know, they, I had guys look over and like, look, I'm the, I don't actually, the funny thing is, is so it was recommended that I did that whole chapter in there about the seals and the, and the police and the things that they're going through. It was recommended that I didn't put it in there. I'm like, well, because of the format of it, I own the rights to the book. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's going to be in there. They're like, well, you just work. That's what, why I'm like, we're going to tie it in because I'm not taking it out. It's too big of a deal. You know, these are these are the, these are real issues that we're dealing with. These are real people, and there are similar similarities. So, the the reason that I went to that world to write is just because of the way things. It was like everything was laid out. For example, the the, the letter in the beginning to the reader, where that was written. That just it's so. It, that was the only thing that was due in order. And that was the first thing that was due. I found myself on a local base here um, with one of our jobs that started. We were going to start it um, like later in the evening, eight, eight nine o'clock, something like that. The government rep wanted to meet at like 3.30 in the afternoon. And I'm like, I'm not going to drive all the way back home and come right back out here to get this night shift going. Let me go over to this park that I used to play as a kid. So I went over to this park where I used to play as a kid, and it's called Seal Park, and that's where the Heritage Center is, where that um, that little prayer is on the wall. And I just got, would help, would think that my neighbor was there when that prayer was probably first uh, first read. But um, I was able to see some of the unique things that they go through. You know, I get into the to you know the evil that's out there that these guys have to deal with on a regular basis. Police are dealing with it every day. And I, some, I have some numbers in there related to the incident, the critical type incidents that the average person sees versus what they see. Mm -hmm. But if if it were not a situation where, you know, where some of those operators had come, came to me and like, John, tell us your story. 
if they wouldn't if they wouldn't have done that, I would have never included that whole realm in the book. Um, just because you know it's something I respect very much, and uh, you know, and um, for what it is, you know, when you know our our mayor here, when um, when when they took out you know Osama, um, you know, he had said you know who it was and where they were based. Our mayor was pretty hot and very vocal about it. Like, hey, look, why did you just put that out there to the world where these guys are? Um, so, you know, but, you know, they're, most of those guys are super humble and, um, and they, 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 they try, they have try to live a normal life with their families and everything else. Um, actually I, it's, I, tomorrow I'm, I've got to go pick up a boy who's, whose dad, you know, is one of those guys, one of those operators and he's jacked up about going hunting so they can, and his dad's going to come up there and spend some time together with them so they can bond because it is a unique strain that they have to face to keep the rest of us safe. Yeah. To make it so that you can take people fishing and I can go out there and enjoy myself fishing. And it's, um, it's an amazing thing that they do. Yeah. And, um, had the privilege to, um, to, to help out with, um, trying to get some support for, um, uh, it's a, a gentleman. He used to be a commander with, with the team in the teams and he has, it's called uh, Bahala's forge. Um, but he also has a, a charity mission that he does too for first responders to come in and build knives and build, build shields and um, military to come in and build them as a form of therapy. So this hall came about with, you know, getting involved with them related to the officer in the book that I referred to calling me in mm-hmm. tears. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like his therapy. Now he's, he's in the process of retiring and that's how he's kind of helping out. And so uh, Monday there's going to be three, um, gold star children um they're doing builds that they their fathers were lost in uh in extortion 17 mm, wow wow so i just want them to be able to have the book and look you know what your daddy's gone but there's another daddy that loves you mm-hmm. um and he loves all of us wow that's incredible one of the things in the book that uh that i thought was interesting is that after all of this very shortly afterwards one of the first things you did was go surfing and get back in the ocean um, what was that like? I mean, and, and did you feel it like you, you were drawn back to the ocean or it seems like it could be that, you know, might be kind yes, of scary. Sir. I mean, definitely. I mean, it was, I mean, I knew that, I mean, I, I mean, you know how it is when you, when you got that salt water running through your veins, you can't get far away from it. You know, when I, it's funny because when I was working at, um, for Ford Motor Company as a safety engineer on the, this was like a half a billion dollar project. The company that it was contracted, the company that I was working for offered me the vice president position, but they were based in Louisville. You know, I told the owner, let's put an awful lot of salt in the Ohio River to get me to come there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you just, I just think you're just drawn to it. You know, when you love the water, you love the water. Yeah. You are drawn to it like that, but that was, that's just interesting with all you know with what you just went through with the surfboard with with everything that 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 almost immediately you go right back you right you felt like what i need right now is to go surfing and, yeah, uh, and that was so funny when, we, when you know when eric and i got in the boat and you know we were, was able you know got him in there and, and you know when this and the surfboard went off and it just says oh man buddy i'm sorry about your surfboard i'm like that don't that's the least of my words that thing yeah. is, don't worry about that thing we can get another one no doubt, man. No doubt. Yeah. Um, well, man, this is, uh, this is awesome. This is a book. Um, if you, uh, you can see the cover here, lost in the stream to the miraculous story of two fishermen lost at sea. Uh, it's really awesome. Great, great book. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, Johnny, I thank you 
thank you for uh, coming on here and telling your story, man. It's really, it's really incredible. I'd love to have you on again and, uh, and uh, see, you know, it, it would be interesting to see what happens once this book gets out there a little bit. And I know you're going to get a lot more messages and, and a lot of uh, it, it's going to be impactful to a lot of people's lives. So um, uh, let's, let's do it again, you know, in the future, let's get together and, and, uh, and follow up. That sounds great. And I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's you know, I've started listening to a lot of podcasts and I, I just love your format. It's oh, well, thank you. Relaxing. It's, it's cool. You know, you got fish in the background and <laughs> you know, I even like the one where you're going down, answering the questions, going down the road in your truck. I'm like, man, he's, I need to get whatever kind of tires he has. Cause these things are pretty quiet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one, uh, that, that, that was a pretty quiet truck. Um, but anyway, yeah, man. Well, thank you for, uh, for, for telling the story on here and thanks for listening and thanks for being part of the family here. Um, if you want to, uh, if you want to read this book, what, where do they go? Anywhere books are sold? So, yeah. So, um, Amazon, that's probably the, 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 the major source of them. Um, just look up lost in the stream. Um, of course, you know, they got it. It was number one new release for, um, boating ships, um, survival biographies and coping with suicide grief. And then it got the number one seller tag for a little while there for, uh, for boating, but yeah, go to Amazon. Also I have a website. It's, uh, lost in the stream book.com. Uh, you can go there and actually from there, there's, there's links and there's links to, um, to my Facebook page and Instagram page. And I'm just kind of like getting to the, to the mode of marketing with this. And it's, I don't know. It's, it's new territory for me. <laughs> yeah, and um, the so, program that I wrote the book through um, is a, called the Creators Program, um, and the, the publisher is New Degree Press. It's a very unique situation. Um, there's enough people. So when it came down to that moment of you know, I went, basically I went through the divorce, crushed. All right, time to tell the story. I started telling the story, and then there was a moment. It was like you got to write a book. That was. I mean, I've been hearing it for years. You got to write a book. And I'm like, yeah, right. Only, only writers write books. I'm not a writer. <laughs> and um, the book came about because, you know, of a dinner that I went to. One of my wife's friends had written a book through this program. So my big fear was if I went through standard publishing, they might take, try to, because it is such an amazing story, they might try to take the miracles out of it. And I wasn't, I wasn't, somebody asked me one time, would you, would you sell the rights to your book, you know, to somebody for, what if somebody offered you $10 million? I'm like, I wouldn't sell it because I'm not going to give anybody the ability to take the miracle out of my story and Eric's story too. He feels the same way. So before I even did any of this stuff, I called Eric. I'm like, Eric, what do you think? He's like, go ahead, buddy. So I wasn't going to proceed without captain's permission. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been, it was great. So it was, it was crowdsourced. So that's what paid for the book to be, um, produced really and that was i mean that was it was then oh, oh tom and i was so that was so humbling and it just the way the timing went so we're we are big tournament here in virginia beach is virginia beach billfish tournament in august and that's when the final drive was for the uh for the funding campaign and the book was fully funded um all the way through you know ebook uh paperback hardback and then audiobook so the audiobook's going to be that's gonna be interesting making that one but uh wow um, i get the hardback you're gonna first. read it yourself uh, well, that's, I've, I, you know, I, I don't know how you do what you do with this podcast. Cause I, you know, <laughs> sometimes when we hear ourselves talk, we always think we sound ridiculous. So, yeah. um, I don't know. A lot of people said you need to do it yourself because only you can put the emotion in it. Yeah. It I, I don't know. I go back and forth. I, sometimes, you know, there are professional narrators out there that do an incredibly good job. 
And then there are authors who read their own books that do an incredibly good job. And then I've also seen, you know, I, I think there's a lot to, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and uh, it, the narrator makes a huge difference. So I don't know. I, th- I think you should read it yourself, or at least at least give it a shot and see how it feels. Well, that, that, all right. So your vote's down on that side. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you should at least at least do it. See how it feels. Let a few people listen to it. You know, get get some opinions because the, the narrator true. is really 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 important. But but I've listened to a bunch of people that have have read their own books and they do a fantastic job because like what your friends are saying is that you're the only one that knows the emotion. You're the only one that knows the true cadence of, of how this should be read. But that being said, there are some incredible narrators out there also. So I think, I think it'd be cool. If Cat Merrick would do it because he's got a neat Australian accent. Yeah. So, you know, we all like, we're drawn to those anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's what'll happen. You could, you could put it out in two versions. The Australian version and the, the regular <laughs> version. <laughs> you know, I've seen I've seen them go out like that. Um, that is cool. But when it comes out, any of these other uh, any of these other uh, versions come out, let me know, and I'll push it on the podcast and and let everybody know where they can find it. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Of course. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really uh, it's really really a great story. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's that's the right way to describe it. It's not a great story. It's it's you know, a truly fortunate incredible too, that, story. Um, that um, so I work for Virginia Pavement Company as well as you know working on the boat and um, we're a part of a very large construction company that does you know road work in, throughout the United States and uh, my uh, my boss you know years you know, a couple few years ago he's like all right this is part of your professional development program you know this book is part of your work you know you hmm. have to get this done really good for him. So what did he great think? Company, I mean, did you ask him about that? Like, did you ever ask him like, why, why do you think this is going to be good? I mean, ultimately he's thinking you need to do this and ultimately you're going to be able to do a better job because you can't, because you're going to get this because this is something you need to do. Right. Like that's ultimately probably what he's thinking. I mean, he, he's looking out for your best interest, but he's also got to be thinking this is going to make, him a better employee because this is something that is lingering for him to do and he needs to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, and as well as it's, and that, you know, as we were in a meeting and, you know, talking about, you know, professional you know, goals toward, and then personal goals and, you know, like that'd be kind of cool for personal goal. And I've learned so much through this process that that program did such a great job of teaching you um, how to talk to people to get the information you need for writing. And there's just so much to it that also was able to kind of using new tools that I'm not, wasn't used now, like I'm using them at work. And uh, the other thing is, is that with this in the depth of study, it's opened new doors. And, um, and I don't care what industry you're in now. Um, the mental health issues are, are tough and, um, and it's tough in the construction world. And, you know, I'll, was able to learn more things in order to, to help our employees. That's um, great. You know, to get through some of their, their tough times. And that's where, you know, like there's one of the stories in the book. And I mean, I was, like I said, I was scared to death of that kid. Next thing I know he's bawling in the office because I just was telling him a fish story about going for a swim. And, you know, <laughs> he tried to end his life that night Wow. before. So um, it's, you know, I think sometimes too, it's a good Lord putting the right people in the right places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Man, that's 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 awesome. Um, well, good job on the book, and and thanks for uh, thanks for coming on today. And we'll we'll stay in touch for sure. And I'd love to have you <clears throat> love to have you back on um, in the next in the next couple of months or something, and find out uh, how everything's going. Cool, sounds great. I'd love to, sir. All right, Johnny. Thank you. And uh, again, the book is Lost in the Stream, a miraculous story of two fishermen lost at sea. Definitely highly recommended. And you can get it at Amazon or probably anywhere books are sold um, or go to Johnny's website. All right. So, Johnny, thank you today. And uh, we, we will talk to you soon. Cool. I appreciate it. All right. See you.